Good morning. It's good to be back with you. I'm John Wood. Uh, I was uh, a little bit amused looking at those coffee beans, all young and uh, looking lovely, different colors, but not yet really full-bodied and tasty. And it's only when it's dark and roasted. And I just say that because I was thinking, for those of you who are young, when you see people like me, we're just getting good. We're just getting roasted well, a uh, little bit of flavor added in. Today is Trinity Sunday. We celebrated uh, last week the third great celebration of the church year, and the one that hardly anybody has any memories of. I asked last week, how many of you have great Christmas memories? Yes. How many have great Easter memories? Of course. How many of you have great memories of Pentecost? Well, usually that's when we're getting everybody ready to go on vacation. It often, in fact, falls on Memorial Day weekend, and yet without what happened on Pentecost, without what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday, Christmas and Easter would do us absolutely no good whatsoever. It would be a beautiful story that could not in any way touch our lives because the Father initiates, the Father sends. It's through the Son that God accomplishes His purposes. It's in the Holy Spirit. And that's why we say, uh, you know, in, in way of benediction to one another, may you know the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who brings this. Now, traditionally, the second Sunday in Pentecost season is Trinity Sunday. So, Today's Trinity Sunday. I was laughing with Stephen when I saw the order of things. I looked up as the screen was uh, flipping announcements, and it said, Trinity Sunday, the gifts of God's, you know, the, the Trinity's gifts. And then it flipped, and it said, grumpy old men uh, helping. So you guys, there's high calling for you this morning, because <laughs> if you're one of the grumpy old men, you're apparently one of the Spirit's very special gifts to this church. We're going to be reading in a couple of moments from John chapter 14. But I do want to just uh, step back and set the scene a little bit. It's Trinity Sunday, and I'm not going in any way to try to go into the depth of expounding why the church formulated its understanding of the biblical teaching as it has, though um, it, it, no matter how brilliantly, how spirit-directed it has been in its formulation of the great Trinitarian creeds, we know that our language, even the language of Scripture, is not able to begin to plumb the depth of the reality of the being of God. Augustine said, God lisps to us in his word. He talks to us the way that we talk to little children. It's all we can bear. But we do know that the Bible is adamant that there is but one God, not two, not three. I think too many Christians, although they'd say there's one God, think in terms of three gods. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, a friend of mine, when he was just out of seminary, uh, and very nervous about doing his first call to worship in a church, made a horrible faux pas. He was trying to be relational, and he said, I want to welcome you in the name of the, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, three great guys. He sort of, we teased him for years about his three great guy theology. No, it, it's, it's one God. 
But that same God, as we, even in the Old Testament, he has a plural name, Elohim. He speaks in plurality, let us make man in our image. We see the angel of the Lord appearing, who is then worshiped as God. All these intimations that within this one God, there is more than one person. And as we come to the New Testament, the Son of God is clearly increasingly seen to be God, Son of God, and to be worshiped and served, and yet uh, one God. The Spirit, when He's poured out, divine God, yet one God. So there is within this one God a community of persons. And of course, if you think about it, it would have to be that way if God were from eternity and was a God of love. It's persons who love. And so within that one God in his perfection is a perfect community. And I think, I, this is not uh, uh, St. John speaking, just John, but um, I do think that we were made as individual persons, one being one person, to create within every one of us a need, realizing that alone we are incomplete. We need one another. To reflect the image of God, we have to be in community. God created male and female. God gives children. So all of that, Trinity Sunday, in the text that I'm going to read, I want to, to begin pressing in again on the things that I said last week about the Holy Spirit bringing to us all that God has done for us in redemption. But this is a wonderful text for Trinity Sunday because we see, as it were, uh, Jesus speaking of a conversation within the Godhead. So with that as background, remember that Jesus has just told them at the beginning of chapter 14 that he's going to leave them. He has led them into Jerusalem. They've followed him in. They see themselves surrounded by enemies who want to put him to death, but they've ridden into Jerusalem with him, and now in the upper room he has said to them, I'm leaving you, and where I'm going you can't come with me. And why? We followed you into Jerusalem. Everybody's out after us. You're, you're talking about going to the cross, and you're telling us you're going to leave us and we can't go. Why? Where are you going? This chapter begins with Jesus saying, it is good for you that I'm going because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. But then he begins to bury in on a second reason that it is crucial that he leave. And that, he says, is because you cannot become what I have redeemed you to be until I go. As long as I'm here, the body of Christ is one body, one person, one place. The world cannot be reached. I must go away so that I may come to you in this new way. And you as my body of first tens and then hundreds and then very quickly at that first Pentecost, thousands. And now today in a world of seven, seven and a half billion people, Half of the, I'm, I'm sorry, one third of the people in the world profess at least to be Christian. That's astonishing in this huge global city. A third of its people self-identify as followers of Jesus Christ. 
So without his background, I'm actually going to read the text. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 15, we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Jesus is speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, here's the conversation, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas, Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I will come to you, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now that I've told you before it takes place, so that, and now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much to you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. I think that 30th verse, the first part, is the word that most congregations wish we preachers would take to heart. I no longer will speak much with you. Um, and I'll try to keep this concise for you. Jesus is talking, obviously, about sending the Spirit. I'll ask the Father, he will send. Our trans or the translation I use, which is the English Standard Version, uh, is, uh, uses helper. I think you usually use the NIV, which I call the Northern Invasion Version. That is, I think, usually counselor, but not in the sense of a counselor that you go see when you're in distress. The word, when it's translated as counselor, it's in the legal sense of a legal counsel, someone who goes with you to court. And the old King James used to translate it as comforter. Why these three different? Because the word itself in the Greek is parakletos, paraklete. And it means literally kaleo is to call, para, alongside. It is one whom you call to when you are in distress and who comes to you. Brothers and sisters, if you don't hear another thing I say this morning, 
hear this well. Do not let your familiarity with this text rob you of the absolute wonder of what Jesus is, was promising them and is telling us. He's saying, if you are mine, you in your distress cry from the heart and the Father will send you his own spirit, my own spirit. That's how he says, I will come to you again. How? The spirit of Christ, who is the spirit of the Father, who is the Holy Spirit. He says, I will come. First he says to be with you forever, but then he tightens it in the next verse, I think verse 17, and says, he will be, he's been with you, he will be in you. If you are a child of God, don't ever think of God merely transcendent, up there, off there, away somewhere. If only, if only for a moment he would hear the cry of my heart. The Bible teaches that once you are a child of God, he has come and made his home in you. And that's why in the letters to the churches, when, when the, Jesus in the letter in Revelation to the churches says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We use that to non-Christians. He's not talking to non-Christians there. He's not promising them anything. He's talking to his children. He's talking to us. It's a letter to the church. And he says, I stand at the door of your life. Don't you want me to come in and make all things new? Don't you want to live in intimate fellowship with me? That's what I'm offering you. That's what Jesus says here that the Spirit comes and is in us as the one who helps, who counsels, defends us in court, <laughs> who comforts all of the things that we most need from the Lord. He is there to do in your life and mine. And in these verses that we read, there are three particular ways that he shows us how life-transforming this is meant to be. And it touches every part of our lives. He speaks of the way that he will transform our thinking, the way we, our minds operate. He will transform our heart affections, and he will transform our wills. So quickly, in the rest of the time, think with me about what he says on those three things. First of all, he talks about how he's going to transform our minds. How does he do that? He says, this one who is coming is the spirit of truth. Did you see that? Verse 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then he goes on and he says in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you, the spirit of truth. You and I live in a world that just embraces lies. It's always been the case, I'm sure, in, at many levels. But in my long life, but short in this world story, I've never seen such a time that lies are so easily promulgated and embraced as narratives that capture the popular culture and then everybody presses them and you're expected to bow to them. 
And we could just go into what some of those lies are, but that's the great thing is he says, when I send my spirit, he's the spirit of truth, and he is going to reveal the lies and show you what the truth is. He's going to enable you to see it. Now, quick history, one minute. The ancient world thought that there were two sources of knowledge, two ways to know the truth. One was reason, whether empirical or thought experiments. The philosophers from Greece on said this, but they also said there are things that we cannot know empirically that God, or for the Greeks, the gods must reveal to us. So reason and revelation, those were the two sources of knowledge. And all people, all times, all places throughout the ancient world believed that, all up through the Middle Ages until the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment really took place because all the religious wars in Europe between Catholics and Protestants, people were sick of their pastor or their priest sending them out to kill each other. And they said, there's got to be a way to establish things that we can agree on. And that was about the time that a particular form of knowledge that was called science was developing its method with people like Francis Bacon, where you could make your thesis and then do experiments and prove this is true or it's not. It works or it doesn't. So we can accept that. We can agree on it. It's provable. So during the Enlightenment and after, it became the norm, at least in the West, that there's only one source of knowledge, and it's scientific truth. And all other things, you're welcome to believe. That's your business, but it's not polite to talk about them at dinner parties. Because that's your belief. You believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. But if it doesn't yield to scientific method, the problem with it was that they're twofold. One, there is nothing that we would give our lives for that can be proven by scientific method. Not the love of a spouse, not the care of our children, not the things that we love about our country or high ideals or anything else. Nothing that we would put on a uniform and go out and fight for yields to scientific method, can be proven or not proven. That's one. So you're talking about a little tiny list of things. But more importantly, boy, I'm so glad that this is an academic group and you love all that. Uh, Michael Polanyi was a brilliant uh, mathematician and philosopher at, at Oxford back in the 50s. And he wrote a book called Personal Knowledge. Basically, what he showed, and only in the 90s did people start getting what he was saying, and he said, everything rests on faith, all knowledge. So the response of postmodern people was, then there is no truth to be believed. And that prevails in our universities today. There is really no truth. There's your truth, there's my truth, but accept the narrative that we're all to buy into. But as Polanyi showed, even mathematics rests on axioms that you can't prove. You accept them because they work. You can't do math without accepting them on faith. Every, every single area of knowledge depends on presuppositions that cannot be proven, which you must basically say, okay, they work, so we're going to accept these, and then we'll build our world and life view. Now, why is that important? Well, because we have a plethora of world and life views being presented. And the Lord is saying, I am equipping you 
with the spirit of truth who will enable you as you build an increasingly biblical world and life view to look at things and see what is true and what is not. And we need that. The church needs it. You, with all great compassion for people struggling with all kinds of issues, one just little matter is a man cannot become a woman and a woman cannot become a man. That's not to be critical. It's not, it's just, if you want to follow science, that's truth. And yet vast portions of our culture are just saying, you can be whatever you want to be, which is a total lie. Heard a commencement address the other day that where, where the guy listed that as one of the great lies being told in our culture. Because if it were true, well, I would have been the middleweight boxing champion, at least of North Carolina. But it isn't true. You can't just be whatever you want. And so God wants us to think in terms of truth. And I would ask you, first of all, are you spending sufficient time every day in God's Word? I'm not talking about hours a day. I'm talking, do you spend a, a meaningful 10 minutes starting your day by washing it in His Word and in His presence, saying, Lord, I'm going to be surrounded by lies today. I want to know the truth. I want to walk in the truth. I want to be a person of truth. I want to stand against the lie. Solzhenitsyn famously, and Rod Dreyer recently took it as a title of a book of his, live not by lies. That is how entire civilizations become captive when we are willing to live by lies. We have been given the spirit of God who is the spirit of truth so that we will live not by lies. And we want to do that compassionately, but we must do it fiercely and faithfully. Secondly, it's a matter of the heart. He says, in a world of anxiety, in a world that's filled with scary things, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Again, uh, our language is a little weak, and even the Greek of the New Testament is, but Jesus was not speaking Greek. He was speaking Aramaic or Hebrew. And the word that he was using was shalom. And shalom is so much bigger than just peace. It's wholeness. It is health. If you've been to Israel, you know Israelis both greet one another with shalom and say shalom when they depart because it is the greatest thing you can wish for anybody. It is a blessed life of wholeness and health being at peace with God and at peace with one another and at peace with our own warring hearts. And the Lord wants you and me to be increasingly walking in that deep peace. Yes, we're at peace because our sins have been forgiven, but he wants more than that. He wants us to experience it in our hearts. And brothers and sisters, when you and I let the agenda of the world around us get us so stirred up and we say, well, I'll give you one illustration of how it happens because it was the last general assembly I went to. I'm uh, not one of those good Presbyterian pastors who enjoys Presbyterian general assembly. And I, I went to uh, this assembly and the moderator eloquently and in his moderate, moderator's sermon talked about 
what had gone on in China that year and how God was through persecution and trouble forging this beautiful, powerful, spirit-filled group of people to carry the gospel to the places where the West could never do it, carry it through the 1040 window, the old silk row. And I mean, his whole sermon was on how God uses suffering and trouble and, you know, look at what he's done with them. Then a few hours later when he was addressing things that the church was facing. He said, oh, the terrible times ahead, you know, we could begin losing our liberties and all these things. I mean, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And I'm sitting there thinking, am I the only person who notices how exquisite is the irony of the juxtaposition of his sermon and this? The one is, thank God for the suffering of the Chinese church because it made them this great group of Christians. We don't want to be that guy. <laughs> we don't want to be like that. We're comfortable. We're happy. Please. Whatever comes. Of course there are real things. Paul tells us to just, you know, know Christ's peace. And then he'll talk in his letters about the anxiety he feels every day for the church. We wrestle in this world. If you're a parent, the old saying is, you're only as happy as your least happy child. Good heavens, is God ever happy? <laughs> I mean, you know, but so we realize this isn't a panacea. This isn't a pill we take to blank out. We, but he's saying under it, in the midst of it, I want you to know that I am for you. I am in you. I am with you. I am beside you. I have prepared a place for you. Your destiny is with me. And whatever happens here and now, however excruciating the pain, there is an exquisite end for you, my child. And you will come through this like gold refined. And hear me say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's where we find, even in the midst of trouble, the deep shalom, the deep peace. It's again by going to the truth. They build on each other. What is the truth? Who am I in Christ? What has he done? I love the psalm where the psalmist goes, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that's how you deal with spiritual depression. You stop listening to yourself and you start talking back to yourself. You say, what's going on? Why are you disquieted? Hope in the Lord. The heart. Finally, the will. And you can't read this text without pain. Did you see how many times he talked about love? You say, what, what does love have to do with will? The Spirit wants to show us that love is not what our culture thinks of as love. Again, language fails us here. We have but one word. So we, we love our car, we love our golden retriever, we love our house, we love the new meal that we, I mean, love, 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 we degrade it. The Greek language of the New Testament is much more precise. If you love your car or love your golden retriever, that's storge. That's one kind of love. If you love your friends, that's philia. So at Philadelphia, that's brotherly love, sisterly love. If you are in love with uh, someone uh, who attracts you, that's eros, erotic. That's the sexual love between man and woman. But the love that the Bible talks about is agape. It's a love that expects nothing in return. 
It is self-sacrificing love, the love with which we were loved, the love that caused God so to love this cosmos that he gave his son, not just to redeem us, but to redeem the entire cosmos. And so just look, if you've got your text, we started with verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Then he goes down just a little bit further uh, over to verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself. Again, down in verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him and will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me doesn't keep my words. And he says again in verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. And finally, he concludes in the last verse by saying, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Do you see? He links completely love with doing what the one you love most desires. And we've totally broken those apart. We've we tell someone comes and says, I, I want to be a child of God. And we say, pray the sinner's prayer with me. And, and they say, okay, what do I pray? Repeat after me. I'm a sinner. I, I want salvation. And, and they'll say afterward, you know, am I saved now? And most of us have been taught to say, yes, praise God, don't ever doubt it again. The Puritans knew better. They'd lead them in a prayer. And when they said, am I saved now? They would say, we'll see. Why? Because in salvation, God just doesn't just do something legally in the forgiveness and the clearing of the slate. He gives us himself. He comes and lives in us. And so there's a new trajectory to our lives. It doesn't mean we always obey. We know the difference between an obedient child and a disobedient child. The obedient child does not always obey. But when the obedient child doesn't obey. There's some real remorse leading to repentance, and I'm sorry, and I don't want to go that way. It's a different trajectory. The disobedient child doesn't always disobey, but there's not huge remorse. Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, Baptist preacher, had a great picture of this. He said, it's the difference between a pig and a lamb. He said, you just look out there uh, when you're at a farm, and there are mud holes, and the lamb stays as far away as he can. And when occasionally he gets bumped into it or isn't paying attention, slides into it, he's miserable. He gets as far away as trying to get clean. But the pig's looking for the mud hole. <laughs> he just goes over, slides in to the neck. Now he's happy. Well, I know that because for a significant period in my youth, I was the pig. I was looking for the mud hole. I knew that God was at work in my life when all of a sudden I didn't want to be in the mud hole anymore. And the, the true things that I'd been told that I'd rejected suddenly were so piercingly, clearly true and everything that I'd been following and thinking and living and doing was so obviously a lie that could bring nothing but destruction. And I knew this wasn't... I, me just growing up, something was happening. What had happened? God, in his sovereign grace, had said, that's it. 
you're mine. I'm turning you now. I'm giving you my spirit. And so if we love him, and I'm going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks when I'm back with you, we keep his commandments, and they're not burdensome. We don't always keep them. Sometimes we really blow it, but it grieves us. It breaks our hearts because the presence of the Holy Spirit changes the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we live. It changes everything. So I just finally ask you in conclusion, are you experiencing something of that in your life now? Because that's what God has for you. That's what's on offer. That's what Pentecostal season is all about. It's, it's saying basically, you've learned all this stuff. Do you want to start experiencing it? Do you want to start tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Do you want to know his presence? Do you want to live in increasing intimacy with him so that you suddenly are recognizing as you never have before what is true and what is not. And you're not looking at those who may be promulgating lies as enemies, but as victims of the enemies, enemy, people to be loved, people to be sought, people to enter into relationship with in hope that you can begin to live truth before them. Are you walking in the midst of the anxieties of life? with an ever-increasing peace because you know that your destiny is secured and that the Lord is not just getting you through this, but is ready to take every broken, painful thing that happens in your life and mine and use it to sanctify us. I must confess, when I look back at my life, I'm like that moderator. I vastly prefer the times, you know, I look back and I think, oh, the, the, the good times. But I grew more during the times of pain than ever during the vacation times. We grow in the battle. And so God is using those things right now to make you the man or the woman that he wants you to be in Christ because he loves you so. And he already sees what you and I will one day be when at last he makes all things new. Do you love him? Well, how do I know? I don't always get teary and worship no, that's not it. Are you increasingly delighting in keeping his commandments? And his commandments are not burdensome. They're a joy. Well, I'm preaching to myself. I thought that by 74 years of age, I would be a far holier, godlier man than I am. But I thank God that he in his infinite mercy and grace has put his spirit in me and enabled me to see what's true, to know his peace, and to find great joy when I obey him and real misery when I don't because he's my father and he is love. And so I want to love him back well. The Spirit is here to help us do that. Okay, I'm done. I didn't use up all the time, but I wasn't as brief as last time. So let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you that you have done for us so much more than we will ever even begin to understand. 
uh, as long as we live and probably a few million years into eternity, however, uh, duration is measured there, if it's measured at all. We will not yet have begun to plumb the depths of your love, but it will be so, so marvelous at last to be separated from the brokenness that too often still confuses us and holds us back from being the men and women that we long to be. And so in that confidence of prayer that you give to your children, we would pray that prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, join me. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from